0: Welcome to Significant Watches. Today we have a special guest here with us, Fred Mandelbaum. Uh, We were thrilled to be invited to the special Breitling event in Zurich, where we were celebrating the uh, 60th anniversary of Scott Carpenter's successful Aurora 7 mission, including three orbits of planet Earth uh, on May 24th, 1962. Uh, and the release of a limited edition uh, Navitimer Cosmonaut uh, in honor of Scott's mission made in 362 pieces. Um, of course, we had an amazing panel with George Kern, the one and only Fred Mandelbaum, three of Scott Carpenter's children, uh, Commander Scott Kelly, uh, the famous astronaut of our time, and... Uh, Mr. Gregory Breitling, and they retold the story of the development of the cosmonaut Scott's mission, um, and it was just an absolutely outstanding event. Uh, thank you for for having us, to Breitling and Fred, and all the wonderful team there. Uh, it was marked, you know, most notably, I would say for for me by the return sort of public discovery of Scott Carpenter's cosmonaut, which he had developed. Um, Gregory told the story of his, his father making this watch for Scott's mission with 24 hour time to, to match the instrumentation in the capsule. And, uh, in order for him to to differentiate day and night easily, uh, and, um, was, uh, unfortunately flooded because of his, uh, return into the ocean. He, he had a rather, uh, arduous process of, uh, keeping the capsule afloat from sinking. So the water, some water had, uh, had gotten in the watch, uh, but it is retained in original condition, unpolished on the bracelet that Scott wore it on. And it had been in the Breitling family's, uh, collection, all these you know 60 years so seeing it next to john glenn's uh cosmonaut was an amazing thing uh and uh certainly was one of the coolest things i've ever attended uh so fred could you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you first saw uh scott carpenter's watch
1: it was one of those unbelievable moments uh that uh, i mean you i've i've been searching in theory, for that watch for decades. Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm addicted to Breitling for, for many, many years. I've done, done in-depth research into all their, their back catalogs, all the history, have uh, uh, built an online database of all references and serials and, and crazy stuff for, for years. And the one watch... I always dreamed about finding was that flown, unique, extraordinary, lost piece. Yeah. Because there were rumors out there uh, that it had been destroyed. There were rumors out there uh, that uh, they had incorrectly restored it which is, mm-hmm. frankly, what I was most afraid of. Yes. Uh, and uh, nobody knew. Uh, yeah. Uh, literally decades. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, when I heard where it was, it was a wow moment. And uh, I then the first thing that I heard is that it was totally destroyed and, and somehow... Unrecognizable. Uh, and when I then saw it, it was really what, what what I'd hoped I knew it was damaged. I knew that Scott, instead of the dry rescue plan, you know the plan was, okay, the guy lands in the capsule in 15 or 20 minutes uh, he's on board the rescue vessel, steps or crawls or whatever out of that capsule, totally dry. Uh, that was the plan, yeah. Uh, and uh, we learned over years that he that he probably barely survived. He uh, never never uh, said he was in danger, but when you read about what he did, uh, dive to stabilize capsule because Gus Grissom's uh, capsule had, had sunk to the ocean floor, and yeah. and, and all the data lost, etc. So. Uh, he, he tried to save the capsule, and of course, didn't think about the watch. So he used the pilot's watch as a as a dive watch in seawater for hours. Uh, so nobody expected it to be <laughs> nobody sane. <laughs> sorry for so, sorry to say that uh, expected it to be pristine. Uh, and I mean, holding that watch in my hand, and I was lucky enough to the sunny day in in Bouchillon, uh, at the at the Brightling family estate, uh, and and seeing it, I don't know, uh, For me, it was uh, lava planets don't exist as, as or oh, they're they're not proven to exist, but this looks like a lava planet. Uh, in, in yeah. a way. It's, hmm. it's absurd. Close, uh, and uh, the funny thing was actually that's a recent find and something i mean you know i'm crazy enough to 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 try for years to uh learn more and more uh i always thought that uh uh actually uh, willie must be mistaken when he when he uh, sorry uh, gregory must be mistaken when he says that that uh when willie brought the watch home uh in summer sixty two The watch looked as it looks today. And uh, he must be wrong. It can't really be. That's the trial. It takes years. And uh, there's uh, funny things that that happen. Uh, A friend of uh, mine and collector was at the event and told me of something that happened to him years ago uh, at a wedding party going a bit overboard, Uh, (laughs) they threw the bridegroom into a seawater swimming pool. Uh, And he had a Navi timer, a radium Navi timer on his wrist. And Patrick tells me that watch looked the same five minutes after the guy came out of the pool. So I started to research and learned that that radium and, and water uh reacts massively uh producing gases etc and uh now my next uh thing I, I plan to do is is uh to to test uh, a radium <laughs> dial in seawater and <laughs> <to> produ- <laughs> produce produce uh, another flown scott carpenter uh, <laughs> that, that's probably really what happened there uh so, uh, uh, in, in general, it's, it's one of those Eureka moments uh, and Wow moments you dream about as a collector, uh, and and I've been lucky enough to to uh, live it. Uh, so, it's, yeah, it's nice. It's really, really, really nice.
0: I guess we we kind of just jumped right in. I did want to take a step back and just introduce you, Fred. Fred, uh, you are. I would say one of the best chronograph collectors on the planet um you're based in vienna austria fred mandelbaum uh and uh watches are your passion um but it's not your full-time job uh tell us you know briefly what you do as your as your typical job uh my
1: day job uh, as i tend to call it uh, yes. is um, uh, own the company. Uh, specializing in computing solution for the automotive industries. Oh, great. Uh, so very far, very far from
0: from it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's wonderful. And... Uh, t- um, We don't want to do the usual kind of questions about how did you get into watches? What's your favorite watch? I think we're all, we never want to do those unsignificant watches. Uh, But you, I've
1: answered that so many times. I know. So we
0: we have a, we have a rule against that.
2: No wrist checks
0: either. (laughs) No wrist checks as well as our other He is
2: wearing something awesome, but we're going to leave that as a mystery for the guests.
0: (laughs) And it's a Breitling. What a surprise. Um, tell us, um, a little bit about uh, that that famous phone call from George a few years back, and, and your relationship to yeah, BrightLink. That's,
1: that's another dream come true. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm generally passionate about chronographs as uh, as you've uh, as you've said uh, uh, by far not only Brightlink but but outstanding, trend setting, relevant. Chronographs. Chronographs. Uh, so Breitling was for for, for years uh, at the core of my my collecting life and research life, uh, and uh, sadly, I've I've been ignored like like much of the vintage collectors community uh, by Breitling for decades. Nobody really understood it. Uh, and I don't want to go into theories what made the Schneiders uh, ignore that, that heritage. Uh, uh, but but uh, in, in a way, I had been documenting Brightling's past more than anyone else uh, on forums uh, and also on Instagram. And uh, yeah, uh, one day I was on vacation in the Veneto. Uh, all the uh, other tourists had, had gone to to Venice, uh, and we decided to uh, stay in the hotel alone at a large swimming pool. Uh, and uh, then my phone dings, uh, and there's a message. Uh, this is Josh Kern. Can you please call me? It was 2017.
0: <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh,
1: and uh, we had heard rumors that the Josh Kern uh, would leave Richmond. I actually didn't really believe it. it was crazy enough to leave that job. Uh, but
0: uh, yeah, he had been named head of watches just yeah, you know, months I, before. I mean, it's one
1: of those uh, I, I really admire him for that. So I must yeah. say that leaving that job and then risking uh going it alone and and uh rediscovering and 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 uh, taking over pride thing was really uh something I hadn't thought possible uh but yeah uh so what do I do? I tell my wife this is probably going to take a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I did call, of course and uh, yeah, we spoke for hours, and was uh, running up and down uh, next to the swimming pool had a sunburn after that <laughs> uh, and uh, we spoke, uh, and, and he told me that he'd been following me and, and seen what I did uh, and uh, said that, that he knew very little about Breitling's past and heritage, etc. And uh, could he come and visit me? Uh, and uh, days after he officially took over, he came to to Vienna. And uh, that's actually something he describes as his eureka moment, uh, because he started to see things he didn't know about. Uh, went through uh, the. The, the decades of, of innovation of Breitling and and quite a lot of watches. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, actually, many of the the watches uh, we've seen revived during the last years. Uh, many of these ideas were, were born during that that first very long day uh, That's that amazing. we had. Uh, and and since then I've uh, been asked to and and must admit I uh, was happy to to accept to uh, help a bit, consult a bit uh, uh, in in rediscovering the, the roots and and documenting the roots and training uh, uh, staff and 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 then lucky enough that uh, Breitling found. Uh, uh, a designer and creative director, I just love working with uh, Sylvain Benaron. uh so Yeah, so it's it's been quite a journey, and uh, so again, something any collector probably dreams about, but but uh, doesn't,
2: doesn't really
1: dare to uh, assume that could
2: ever happen. Eric, about five years ago, if if you were to be told that you know, Breitling would have this really incredible chapter of, of, of a re, reinvigorated as a brand and having all of their brand building be really involved with collectors and enthusiasts and people who have invested so much time outside of the company. And I think you had mentioned, you know, the brand had gone up four times that at it's evaluation valuation at the time in 2017. What, were your, what would be your thoughts if someone had told you all of
0: this I uh, I you know I wouldn't have believed it either I um, remember uh, Fred and I've known each other a fair bit of time and I remember the the dark years when Fred and everyone else would be lamenting uh, what the previous group was was saying about their heritage and what they were coming out with every year the, the models and I remember uh, about that the time uh, Fred got that call from 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 George and had that call with the, we were all a uh, group of friends that, that we were corresponding with. We're all, uh, absolutely shocked and, uh, of course excited, but it's wonderful to see it come to fruition. And, um, I wanted to ask you, Fred, how, how it kind of feels to see some of the, the reissues and heritage models you've been involved with come to market and come to reality. It's, it's, What's it's the feeling? It's
1: actually less. Uh, very frankly, the the uh, the re-editions I've I've been responsible for these, and uh, it was a lovely, lovely, lovely uh, job I I had, uh, and I, I enjoyed it. Uh, but but it's it's more than that. Doing a very very good reedition uh, isn't enough uh, because. Yeah. Uh, uh, you have to take these these elements of the past the, the character of a company and and bring it into uh, the present into the new watches that aren't re editions and I, uh, that's what i'm what what i'm much more proud of really i've done decent re editions i've tried to do the best possible and yes. hopefully they aren't that bad no. uh, but <laughs> uh, but but more than that it's uh, and we we've, we've just seen a uh, part of of uh, things uh brightling is is planning but but i think that uh, in in all the watches launched uh during the last 3 years uh we we've really tried that. you know understand the essence the character Uh, And that doesn't only apply to uh, my favorite 1940s to to 1960s models. Uh, It it applies in the same way to uh, the Chronomat that was that brightling high fly of of, uh, the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and, and that had lost a lot of its original character. Absolutely, and uh, we went in and and this was absurd. I mean, we had with several prototypes quote unquote production ready and were crazy enough to to go back and start from scratch uh, because they just weren't good enough uh, and, and funnily enough, I'm much more proud of the chronomat, although it isn't. My watch in any way, yeah, uh, because it, it really revived you know, a like cornerstone of, of Breitling's success. It uh sells like like hotcakes, it's just the perfect new chronomat, uh, and all's right about it. Uh, totally and cool. and that's much more important than, than, again, uh, the Navi time or the Avi, they're beautiful re-editions, beautiful watches uh but but we uh, i think the people have learned from them we're we're back to to sharp chamfers and edges and and polishing uh, uh that i mean all the lazy stuff is gone uh, yeah. uh the the attention to the smallest detail is back uh and and that's actually what i'm really proud of and i can it, it's impossible for me to, to really be objective in any way. Uh, but yeah. uh, I, I think it, it does show, you know, that pride of being Breitling does show. And uh, that's what I'm proud of.
0: Just taking, you know, just going back to the event itself, um, very, I mean, I, can't imagine another company that would invest this much kind of effort and attention and detail um and of course the cost of of bringing over many collectors and journalists and everything else for a limited edition of 362 pieces it's not about the watches it was about the the history the heritage the brand building and you know it was really uh was a dream to attend it so you Uh, know
1: crazy enough to do i mean brightling is um industrialized mass producing large company we aren't an independent doing series of 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 10 watches yeah Uh, who's who's crazy enough to do uh Uh, a bespoke caliber just for those 362 pieces. That's crazy. Uh, But we've been crazy enough to do uh, a bespoke caliber for the AVI with a 15-minute totalizer just for one model uh, because that's what differentiated the original AVI from all others. Uh, So that's, again, uh, it isn't about return on investment on a single project. Uh, it's about again self assurance pride uh attention to detail, and uh yeah, that's what the event was about. It wasn't about selling a watch uh it was about you know building your own character in a way maybe that's uh the best way to describe it
2: one of the um one of the quotes that George Curran said at the end of the presentation. And panelist um session was this is just the beginning. I've...
1: uh yeah, he uh, always says that. So his standard. This is he said it when he when he brought back this was another another of my dreams, when he brought back the duograph, uh etc. Uh again, an in-house caliber of course. Uh uh, yes, there are many more plans, the probably pre- plans I don't know about, but uh, uh, but uh, the plans I do know about uh, are, are quite exciting and, and nice. Uh, so uh, that's how I see it. Look, there were people again during the takeover uh, that that said uh, that's private equity and they're just in it to milk it. Uh, for for as much as I can, and they won't invest in in uh, technology, etc. And the contrary is true. I mean, Breitling is working on on a wide range of of new in-house calibers, and say uh, it, it's one of those uh, examples where many of the mavens uh, of the world who said uh, a private equity investor uh,
2: will kill the company, I think. Uh, it's yeah. the other way around. Yeah. It's so it's so fascinating because that stood out to me. I'm I'm sitting there in the, in the crowd and as he says this, you know, this weekend was was quite a uh, eye-opening moment for me in terms of my outlook of Brightling. I've always, you know, understood okay, the Navitimer, great history. I've appreciated like Super Ocean heritages, you know, re- modern releases like the Transocean, but it was being involved with and sitting at the table and having, you know, Fred bring all of these watches and just throw them on the table. And every single person is passing them around and enjoying, you know, Fred's personal collection. It was just so much trust and so much enthusiasm. People were asking, Fred was like the center of the party. He was, he was telling us all the stories and showing us all of the details. It really was a a special moment. And Eric and I, as we're, Walking back to the hotel, I looked at him and I said, "You know, I don't know if I ever would have said this, but you know, I kind of want to get a Breitling now." And Eric said, "I need to actually get a Breitling for my personal collection as yeah. well." know. So <laughs> I want to this this type coach. of this type of you know uh, strategy of involving great people because we met dozens of people within Breitling this week. And every single one of them was just truly enthusiastic. They knew about the brand. They could tell, they could educate, you know, Eric and I about certain models, whether new or old. It was a special moment and it was very, um, it was, I think, you know, a case study in brand building and also getting people to fall back in love with something that may be a little bit, um a little bit uh in our opinion vintage enthusiasts it's hard to make us aspire to want to have a new watch but they've they've done a great job in building up you know the prestige of this brand
0: and one you know one funny thing uh fred you thought the scott carpenter uh cosmonaut that i have uh, for sale at present would go <laughs> pretty quickly after after the event but uh it has. i'm in discussions with with uh, a collector whose father was on the U.S. Navy ship that recovered Scott Carpenter. And it was one of his father's kind of best memories of his time in the Navy. And he was, was very close to pulling the trigger on it and wanted to learn more about it because he was not uh, very knowledgeable about vintage Brightling. He's more knowledgeable about rolex and patek philippe so that's the kind of thing you know if this event hadn't happened and the watch being rediscovered and everything else it wouldn't have ignited this collector's interest in in this watch so it's pretty neat
1: i do assume there'll be quite a lot
0: yeah (laughs) i've had
1: several people ask me about that watch you have by the way
0: (laughs) yeah
2: no that's good Fred, could you could you tell us a little bit about um, the the recent publication, the Navitimer story? Um, you know, I was having a little bit of trouble with jet lag, falling asleep on the plane back, so I just opened up the book and skimmed through it for uh, several hours. And I was just curious if we could maybe talk about that because it was a really interesting, you know, book, and I think that it deserves some, uh, you know, first hand account from from yourself
1: i've uh, helped quite a bit uh, in in writing that book and and researching uh, for that book uh you know Navi timers actually would need an eight hundred page book uh and this is quote unquote just uh an overview i mean that watch has seventy years of history uh and actually that's not really true because the original Chronomat uh, from from nineteen forty or earliest forty one uh, is is really many respects a Navitimer. That's where the technology, the patterns, the concepts, etc. of that original smartwatch are coming from. Uh, so you'd. Uh, Again, a book that really does it justice uh, would would be impossibly long. Uh, but what we try to do is is to to give an overview, uh, I think it's the first time that has been done over those seventy years of the main executions of the Navi timer, uh, the dating, etc. So anybody into that model, will have quite a decent overview uh, when and what, which characteristics of the Navitimer would be period-correct, etc. Uh, it's, again, one of those things uh, from all the people that I know who have got the book. Uh, they seem to enjoy it a lot, and it does help them quite a lot. So it's a decent thing.
0: Uh, yeah, cannot
1: Rather not say that myself, uh, but but have others uh, say that
2: it's good. But I really think it is. One of the it, one of the things that I thought, you know, <laughs> I, I we were talking with Louis about this, um, whose watch is also in the book, and
0: Louis Westphalen, for those yes. of you at home, who was previously at Hodinkee as an MBA from MIT and was part of the. Uh, the new regime at Brightling, you know, about five years ago, as head of uh, digital engagement and e commerce with a strong knowledge of Brightling's
2: heritage. And, you know, one of the fantastic parts about that conversation I had, I had learned that Brightling was in a lot of ways involved in the production of the book, but taking a very back seat to allow. The collectors the enthusiasts as well as researchers to really steer the ship in a sense um that was something that was i think you know it, it's uncommon for watch brands to want to give so much of the control to other parties to produce a book rather than you know them in many cases publishing books and putting an author's name on it um and it's just essentially a big sales catalog in, in a lot of ways this felt completely different and i learned that brightling had actually um generously purchased several thousand copies to cover the costs of production of this book and allow you know it to get published as well as you know then those books i believe are given out to you know collectors within the boutiques as well as people you know, who are friends as well at the events and such. That that sort of effort, do you think that's practice that should be done within more watch brands? And is there any success in you know cultivating Look, or reinvent? Am- Go. For- Whom I? Who am
1: I to say what other brands should do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, there's uh, again, uh, there's this. A philosophy behind that: uh, f- no fluff. Uh, l- l- tell it like it is. Uh, let the researchers, let the historians, uh, let the collectors uh, really say what they think, and not use it as uh, a-, a marketing or PR. Uh, projects Uh, and in the end i think it's much better this way because that's how it comes across there's somebody who documented the history of a model and there's no single sales pitch in there there's nobody who told me uh how to arrange executions nobody who told me what to include or not to include Uh, and uh in the end I think that's what, what people want we are inundated in, in uh, marketing speak and PR blurbs from uh, day to day frankly much of uh, the social media stuff uh, today is, is precisely that much of uh, the postings we read uh, are paid for uh, and uh I'm actually convinced that uh, that's the wrong way to spend your money. If you spend your money on, on authentic knowledge in the market, this is going to benefit you much more uh, than telling somebody what he should like. It doesn't work. Especially, I mean, not for the type of, of, of people uh, I really respect. And uh, yeah, so I think it's good. And uh, it hopefully won't be the last book. Brightling did. Uh, problem with Brightling uh, is uh, that it's. I mean, there's there's just so much to document. There's so many models. If you look at, at ranges like the Premiere or the of or, or the Taurus, etc., uh, a bit different from from many other brands is that that. Breitling uh, didn't have a decade of glory uh, but, but it actually starts uh, let's leave aside those, those uh, uh, early nineteen fifteen species. but if you look at, at late 30s to late 70s it, it's fireworks of, of uh, innovation we, uh, the, uh, the 1946 catalog alone has sixty-six different chronographs in it, uh, so wow. that's a bit of a problem to document <laughs> all that. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of research uh, that has been done, uh, but to put that into books uh, is quite an effort.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think this book was really, uh, you know, a wonderful start, and I'm happy to have it on my. Bookshelf as, uh, you know, one of the first books about Brightling that's worth having on a bookshelf. So it's great. So what, uh, Fred? What do you? What's kind of next? If 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 you can reveal it uh, for brightling <laughs> uh, for you. <laughs>
1: of course, I can't. And I, yeah, uh, it was really. I mean, one of the things uh, you know me well enough, uh, not being open. With my friends and and telling people for years that I didn't know where the flown carpenter was, <laughs> dear friends, okay, who ask me, do you have any information? And I had to say, no, of course not, because i yeah. sw- sworn to to secrecy. Uh, <laughs> so I, of course, can't reveal uh, what uh, George meant uh, when he when he said it's it's only the beginning, uh, but. Uh, uh, Jen, assume that, that every model line is is thoroughly looked into uh verified whether whether it really reflects the true character of the brand. And I'm not talking about those those uh, years of uh, where, where when the, the character turned into into macho large watch bling. Uh Apparently anyone <laughs> whatever. Okay. There's Look, uh <laughs> you have to admire the Schneiders for saving that that company. And they did and they built a hugely successful company. But I'm I'm quoting George again, uh who said Brighting for many years uh was a shark in a swimming pool, you know, very niche in a very narrow segment of the market, uh and and sometimes being louder than you should be. Well, uh, there's, there's actually a quote from Willy again uh, and that, that isn't really easy to reach. Uh, Willy's motto was uh, the watch on your wrist needs to be the sign of impeccable taste.
0: That's that was true.
1: his life motto and another life motto was never compromise uh so the guy did things like like a 48 millimeter diameter uh watch uh probably because of that problem with uh, scott carpenter's uh, navi timer yeah uh he tried to do a 200 meter waterproof navi timer and said okay friends uh I'm sorry, but the only way to reliably make the NaviTimer a dive watch, uh, it needs to be 48 millimeters large.
0: Right. And that's what he
1: did in 1967.
0: It's that's like,
1: like 20, 25 years before big watches uh, were all the craze. And he didn't do it because he liked big watches, uh, but because he said, I don't compromise on function. So it's either perfect or I don't do it.
2: And Fred, at this point, is this when we, we see Irvin Picare mm-hmm. enter in terms of case production? Is this the first um, Navitimer that is truly water resistant because of that case manufacturer? Uh, uh,
1: Picare was then uh, the only company who really had the knowledge to do that. Uh, so uh, instead of, of doing... Uh, actually, Breitling worked with, uh, like, like all companies, they worked with Frere, uh, they, they worked uh, with uh, Picaret, they worked with uh, Stila and Gigon, all the large uh, manufacturers of, of high-quality uh, cases. Uh, but, of course, he, he chose Picaret, uh, to uh, develop and, and patent that the dual uh, rotating uh, bezel solution, uh, and again, it was September '67. So it, it uh, apparently took Picaret, uh several years to to finish that job. It's uh, still a, one of the most complex uh, cases uh, ever built uh, because you know those regular super compressor cases with setting crowns. Uh, They experimented with that, uh, just like, like, I mean, there's there's several guys who've tried to copy the NaviTimer over time, Uh, so they use the setting crown for the slide rule. Problem is, uh, the slide rule loses its function. You can't use it as a flight computer anymore. It looks like one, but it isn't uh so yeah picare yeah. was the the only one who could do it and and did it
2: i think one of the you know subjects that i always find the most interesting um is this aspect of collaboration within different case makers dial makers mm-hmm. movement makers a lot of people i think when you're getting into a you know subject of oh is breitling's movement in house that's a very important thing to me you know, these types of aspects of, of having multiple parties and experts in their own field be involved in in the production of a watch or even in the case that we're just talking about, the brand building, you know, you get outside parties who aren't within the within the company or you hire people who are true watch enthusiasts or this type of collaborative effort seems to always be the most um the most interesting thing to study for me when it's when it comes about watches, what what um, kind of nerdy details, I guess, whether it's case manufacturers or dials, movements, what is the stuff that is right now driving you crazy, and you want to figure out if, if you can share? Uh,
1: it's it's always actually, I mean, the real problem, uh, the true costly problem. Uh, is uh, doing in-house calibers. You know, uh, when people ask you, why don't you do your own in-house caliber for this or that? Uh, And frankly, nobody really, and I really mean almost nobody uh, in the the community understands how impossibly expensive industrializing an in-house caliber is. Uh, it's years of work. It's building up of huge factories. Uh, uh, so having the calibre you want uh, is uh, for specific design is is really the most complex thing of all. Like we and again being Breitling, we can't do a non chronometer certified chronograph uh, and sometimes our in-house movement is just too big for some very, very slim watches. Uh, so in my dreams, that would be much easier uh, to uh, go back in time and have those beautiful uh, vintage chronograph calibers that allow you to do a 36 millimeter, 9 millimeter high uh, chronograph. Uh, we'd love to do that, uh, but... Uh, uh, even if we go outside, and, and it isn't that Breitling does everything in-house. For example, for the the Torah, it would have been prohibitive uh, to do our own in-house in-house calibre. So We went outside, just like the tourbillon. So We go to a manufacturer, work with them, check with them, have them do it. Uh, but in in many areas, those calibers just don't exist. So in in a Again, there's, there's work on, on a lot of in-house stuff uh, because we don't want to be depending on anybody else. Uh, but I'd, I'd love that to be quicker than it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: and more affordable.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, For- one watch that I... Had not uh, seen in person but has been haunting my dream since I, I saw it in your collection was your Breitling Duograph 791. Just such a beautiful watch on the wrist.
1: Absolute
0: perfection.
1: Uh, but but again, the problem here is uh, what do you compromise on? So we did our own uh, uh, premier heritage duograph with an in-house caliber. Uh, but uh, we wanted to give it, you know, everyday usability. So it's one of the waterproof, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, with our in-house caliber, we we end with uh, uh, that that added functionality at a minimum size of, of 42 millimeters. We're quite, quite proud that, that for the hand-wound, uh, we're down to uh, 40 or even a bit below 40 as a possible size. I mean, if you look at, at uh, we, uh, if you look at the uh, LE we just launched, that shows you uh, the minimum size uh, we can reach uh, with our in-house hand calibers. It's uh, I think the, the bezel is, is below eleven millimeters high, uh, and uh, it's uh, forty millimeters case diameter. Uh, so that's as, as small. As we, as we can and, and probably as small as uh, we will be able to even in the future because, again, where do you compromise? Do you compromise in, in uh, power reserve? Do you compromise in, in water protection, etc. cetera? Uh, so, again, in theoretic dreams, I'd love to have a 39-millimeter, 13-millimeter uh, high geograph like the 791 Uh, For now, we are a slight bit bigger than that, but uh, I think the modern Geograph is quite nice. Problem about those vintage Geographs is uh, they were very expensive watches then, and uh, uh, they were built in batches of one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, for example, for the 791 that, that you like so much, uh, Brightlink built fifteen cases uh, in the early nineteen fifties, and the next case back uh, badge uh, was built in nineteen seventy. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> that <laughs> wow. tells you that tells you a bit how easy it is to find one of these. If you see
0: any, let me know. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> that you don't want for yourself. I, I definitely <laughs> will. Yeah,
1: uh-huh. yeah. There's as but it's. Uh, again, uh, it's it's a bit like children, uh, so you can't say it's it's your your favorite, but it's it's as perfect as a watch as I've seen.
0: Really is. Um, one thing I wanted to clarify: the um, Scott Carpenter and the John Glenn uh, cosmonauts were they acquired by Breitling for the Breitling collection from the Breitling family,
1: or no? They're both still owned and will be owned by Gregory and Gregory has no current plans to sell them okay. uh, and it's it's one of those problems how do you put the price on the flown scott carpenter how do you yes. do that yes uh, so there there was a crazy insurance valuation so one of the uh, expensive things about a rather expensive event we we had uh, was actually the the insurance uh, uh, for the clone carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as I said it, it's hard to put a value to it, and uh, currently no plans by by Gregory. It's it's really, I mean, he's uh, well off. He lives a very very comfortable life in in one of the most beautiful houses I've ever uh had no it's the most beautiful uh location i've i've uh, ever ever been to uh so he's not desperate for money uh and yeah. uh I think that that he really it's it's really part of of himself in a way and uh yes it it really took george uh, and it took the revival of of brightling and and the pride in the brand. Uh, to to have him come out and, and tell that, that uh, he, uh, he had that watch. And he was one of the happiest people on earth, uh, as, as happy as I was uh, during that event. Uh, Gregory was close to tears uh, because it's, uh, in a way, the, the, the life of, of his father, uh, the memories of, of the family, of his childhood, of, of everything. Uh, he, I mean, as absurd as it is, uh, the first official Breitling contact with Gregory Breitling wow. was by Georges Kern. They wow. never spoke to him. Uh, so, yeah, he, he's extremely happy, and I'm afraid uh, he'll keep that watch for now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's great, hopefully he's wearing it around the house uh, every now and then <laughs> one of the one of the aspects I think I'd like to just touch on I think it, it is just truly remarkable that that watch did not get restored over all of these years because many of the watches that we see in in collections that have such incredible provenance that over the decades it was just it was just a common occurrence for these things to get polished up redialed everything and and this is truly a an artifact and and the fact that it is preserved is just so special could i maybe get both of y'all's opinions on what that you know means for a watch manufacturer to look at these things as artifacts instead of creating them to look like the watch should have been back in the day. If there are defects or imperfections on these watches. You
1: have to, you have to understand. I think you have to understand Vili. Willy. Uh, Willy wasn't just a watch manufacturer. Willie was, was uh, a visionary, probably a little bit crazy, uh, <laughs> but a very nice person from, from all I hear. Uh, and uh, when when Sputnik launched in 1957, uh, he started, you know, to dream about a new world. Uh, there's uh, uh, he made a desk clock uh, on the occasion, and 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 he was talking. I mean, I'm quoting here from 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 things he wrote. Uh, uh, he was dreaming about a new world about. Uh, space stations and and men living on on moon and Mars and uh, thousands of satellites uh, or, uh, orbiting the Earth. I mean, we're not on Mars yet, but but anyway, in a way, in '57 he saw what we uh, what would happen. Uh, space travel was was mesmerizing to him. Uh, so probably much more so than when George called me when uh, I was at the pool uh, in the Veneto, uh, when uh, (laughs) Scott Carpenter called and said, hey, uh, that's, uh, quoting Scott here, that's a dandy watch you have. Uh, That's (laughs) what the American astronauts want to have. But can you please adapt this and that and the bezel, etc.? Can you please do a watch for me? That wasn't a watch for him. That was a representation of his life's dreams. Uh, So when uh, a pilot watch was uh, misused as a dive watch and it came back uh, to be restored, uh, and and the guy, I I mean, by then, uh, uh, that model was in mass production. He had hundreds of dials, handsets, uh, uh, calibers. Uh, he had 1,100 watchmakers working for him. Uh, restoring it would have been nothing, like drop it off and, and pick it up next morning. Uh, but uh, I think he just had didn't have the right to change history. And, and that's how he dealt with it. That was an important part of history, uh, that what represented his dream, and uh, he thought he had no right to touch it and restore it. Uh, I don't know what I would have done. I have no clue, especially with with all the parts at hand. Uh, uh, But but for him, it, it was precisely an artifact then, when it returned. Uh, and that's how it was kept and I think that's the most extraordinary thing about it and, and for all who've, who've seen it in real life it's a beautiful artifact it's uh, a, I don't know, not art art's the wrong term for it it's uh, just a piece of dreams in a way and represents them uh, and uh, that's what the nice thing what's the nice thing about it I, um, I, I I'll, would,
2: I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you, uh, jump into the next part, Eric, but, um, I mean, it truly is something that is just remarkable to be in the presence of. I was right next to the booth taking photos of it. And I saw George Kern walk over, uh, unlock the booth, take it out. And I immediately just stood guard next to this booth. Cause I said, I'm going to get a photo of this thing when it returns outside <laughs> of it. The... And just being in front of it, I mean, it is like, um, the moment in uh, Pulp Fiction when they open the briefcase and your face just glows with some sort of light—it was—it was really a remarkable one. But Eric, continue on the the yeah. fact that this le- was left pre- um, well, as original. Just adding to that, no one
0: could take their eyes off that watch in the reception. It was—I've uh, experienced that with a few watches during previews at Christie's and other events where certain watches have, uh, have an aura about them and everyone's coming to look at them for various reasons, whether it's that it's, you know, the most outstanding example of a, of a given watch, but, uh, also that kind of, I've seen it with certain watches with patina with history like that. It's just, it glows. Uh, there was one collector, uh, at the event, uh, David Goldstein from New Jersey, and he brought his wife and, and adult daughters with him. And they, uh, just said they couldn't stop looking at it. And they were not, you know, watch, watch people, if you will, by any stretch of the imagination, they were just kind of putting up with their father's, uh, watch (laughs) hobby. Uh, But they,
2: they
0: said they couldn't take their eyes off it. It was, it was awesome to see.
2: Yeah, it was truly special. Um, Eric and I were talking about, um, it was funny, I I asked to get a photo with uh, Jeff Stein in the lobby of our hotel before we were leaving, and Jeff had a funny comment. He says, oh, he's going to crop my face out and put it on Mount Rushmore. And then immediately after, I said to Eric, I said, who's on your Mount Rushmore of watch researchers? So I was curious if we could go around the uh, circle and talk about who our Mount Rushmore of watch researchers are. Cause Eric, I, I, if, if it's all right, would you mind starting? Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I think
0: both Charlie and I instantly agreed that both uh, Jeff Stein and Fred, you would be on our Mount Rushmore of, of watch of experts you. and collectors. Uh, if I can just say you're such a giving person to the community, you know, you don't get paid when the, hundreds of people that have contacted you probably every month asking for your advice on things. You're so open and giving and Jeff Stein is the same way. When I was a young guy, just starting out writing for Houdinki, asking him questions and looking at purchasing my first uh, Hoyer Carrera, he was, you know, so supportive and, and giving of his time and expertise as are you with, with Breitlings. It's really wonderful. Um, So, yeah, uh, I would say definitely both of you, you know, Ben, Ben Clymer really inspired me. Without him, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And he was very supportive of me writing for Hodinkee starting back in 2010. Uh, So he's definitely on my Mount Rushmore. Um, Certainly John Reardon as well, uh, who gave me the opportunity at Christie's and who taught me so much. Uh, while I was there and uh, Eric Tortella uh, who's a bit of a wild guy in Greece uh, who I love but he's uh, he's taught me a lot about uh, vintage patek Philippe and uh, I would say U5 would be a good good group for me <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, regarding
0: I mean I, I'm, I'm honored to
1: to be one of those uh, regarding Jeff I I really have to say that that in addition to to being... Uh, I'd say the, the, the blueprint of of uh, how a perfect collector should be. Uh, he's, he's probably one of the nicest people on earth, and I'm I'm uh, happy that that he's a close friend too. Uh, but uh, what I want to add here, uh, it's actually one of the standard questions uh, I often get asked, and I. Think that it's especially in, in time we we've, we've had the times of, of forums uh, where there were more of them around. Uh, but uh, being a watch collector isn't about owning watches, uh, and whoever doesn't get that uh, will never be a watch collector. He may amass watches, he may buy tons of watches, uh, but actually uh, you start being your real collector when you start to understand how little you know uh, and uh, how much you have to learn. Uh, it's scholarship, it's research, uh, it's very often friendship and understanding who to trust uh, and then the last point, I think, that, that a true collector needs to have is that, that urge to pass it on, uh, to pass on the passion, the knowledge. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the most important thing that we all have is uh, uh, the, to, to be able to say that, that people can trust in your word. And when that has happened, then in my book,
0: you're a true collector. That's probably the best definition of a true collector you'll ever hear. So thank you for that, Fred. It's really wonderful. Charlie, who's on your Mount Rushmore?
2: You know, it's it's so funny. I um as a, as we're flying over, I uh, look over at Eric. I was like, "You think Fred's gonna like me?" <laughs> That's like my funny <laughs> one. Is I always is I always uh, tell Eric, "I was like." what do you think? Are they going to be, are they going to be a huge disappointment? Am I, (laughs) am I getting my, you know, expectations too high? And it's so funny because I find that the people that I always um, have the most admiration and respect for are people who are so much more knowledgeable than I am, that just take the time and really are excited to talk to me about watches the questions I have they you know I might ask an insane question that's just so out of left field and the person just sits there and talks to me for 15 minutes about it or I'll you know spend a a bunch of time corresponding with them via Instagram and hassling them (laughs) to the point where they're like this person why am I why have I not blocked Charlie yet and they still (laughs) continually you know give me the time of day so the the first impression of, of meeting Fred, uh, he was just the warmest, uh, larger than life character in the room. And, and immediately upon meeting him, he just runs up to me and uh, gives me a big handshake and and is talking with me. And it was just a fantastic experience. I was definitely had uh, high hopes and I wasn't let down as, as they say, never meet your watch heroes, but I continually (laughs) luck out and, Meet good ones. Uh, you know, obviously, Jeff Stein. That was incredible. We we just walked out of Eric and I ate probably um enough Middle Eastern food for four grown men, which surprisingly was forty two euros or Swiss francs. I'm sorry, it is insanely <laughs> cost effective in the hotel. We walk out and we're just completely defeated, and I see. Qu- turning the corner i look at eric and i say is that jeff stein and jeff stein runs up to both eric and i and hugs us and i, I look over at eric i said this is so great <laughs> this trip is working out so jeff stein is on my mount rushmore and was the you know most exciting nice. one um eric obviously has been a, a tremendous influence on me at first time i met him i reached out to him and said hey i'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you i'm coming down to south florida um to do a few things i was really just reaching out so i could see watches to him so i made that up but he insisted no we we're not getting coffee come over you have to see my library i have to show you watches all of this stuff and say i don't have a lot of money to buy watches just a heads up he says it doesn't matter come over <laughs> and since then eric has always been the most enthusiastic um he's on my and, mount rush motto so yes oh, he's a tremendous mentor to me um and a great friend and, and, uh, you know, blessed to have him in my life. Um, John Reardon and Tanya from collectability have been just so welcoming to me in terms of getting me excited about Patek Philippe. Tanya is like the under the radar, uh, Mount Rushmore one. I would say she's just brilliant. Um, so I've had the pleasure of writing a few articles with her and that was tremendous. And then, um, for me, Giving me a big, um, you know, push was Tony from Rescatement. Uh, I, I always look at his um, his work as kind of the benchmark in terms of watch media or watch um, coverage. I think he's just, um, you know, someone I look up to a lot and have a tremendous amount of respect for. And he was the first person to really uh, tell me to write a full article on something and, and had confidence enough in me to you know, proofread off my articles on rescapement. And also, last shout out, um, Nick from Ad Patina. He's changed the way I look at watch advertisements as not just this marketing junk from the past, but he has the most um insane passion for seeing these as, as primary source material that you can research watches based off of the fact that he treats these things, um, he hunts for them in the condition like you would hunt for a watch. I mean, mm-hmm. Nick is just a total inspiration. So I love, I love um, hearing him talk about advertisements, the condition of the paper, the print, the fonts, everything. He just is a, a remarkable human being as well. Yeah, it's
0: absolutely. It's just, these are all very, uh, very good groups.
2: Oh, and right. the last one. Eric and I did not mention we both have on our Mount Rushmore is Martin Vandervin um, yeah <laughs> from... just the most in- incredible car researcher as well and you know a hero uh for for vintage watch research
0: Absolutely um can't wait to meet Martin uh, in person one yeah, day. Really,
1: although there's there's uh, Nico Henke. Funnily enough, there's there's a second outstanding scholar there for yes, Enikka uh, uh, Nico Henke, and and of course, uh, I mean there's there's my old friend uh, Rene Kesting, uh, who sold all his watches, uh, this collection, and is <laughs> now living on a catamaran somewhere in the Caribbean <laughs> uh, on a stopover. Yeah of a four-year or more uh trip around the world uh so <laughs> he's the most smartest on my Mount watchmore.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah mount watchmore i like that yeah, that wasn't bad <laughs>
2: right
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. i like it
2: yep right. hashtag that <laughs>
0: yeah well we're we're running up uh on quite a long time, we could yeah. continue the conversation for hours, but I'm we should uh, probably
1: go. That's a bit long.
0: Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, thank it you was so much. Too boring. Exactly. Well, we can't thank you enough for having us, Fred, and pleasure, to all the Brightling team. The Brightling team, you know, we can't speak highly enough about every single person there. Was passionate about the brand, very knowledgeable, wanted to talk about vintage brightling or vintage watches generally uh, with Charlie and B and Jeff Stein and, and the whole group. It was, was uh, something we'll never forget. And uh, with that, thank you. Thank you, Fred. And we'll be back uh, for our next episode of significant watches with the whole gang with Tony Traina, Gabe Benador, Charlie Dunn, and me discussing the Hong Kong uh, watch auction results and looking forward to the New York watch auctions as well. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Charlie. It was a
1: pleasure, of course. thank you. Uh, thank, thank, you, you. thank you, Eric. Thank you, Charlie. See you soon, I hope.
0: See you soon. Okay. <laughs>